0: quadrants of portland big thanks to everyone who spoke with me at mayday and in regards to issues with david douglas school district and big big thanks especially to my engineers galen and jimmy i hope you'll join us next week on thursday at noon for our next episode until then stay tuned to x-ray where radio is yours
1: myself with my head outside of the womb of my mother.
2: Being His eyes created, went from almost jet black to, to like pure blue during the process. When
3: heart breaks, there's an opening. There's a great opening into a big, big space. It was maybe the first moment of clarity and honesty and the first real connection I had ever had to the universe.
2: We are all inherent pure enlightened consciousness and wisdom and compassion. We just are in different stages of unveiling. So that's what keeps us alive. We put our energies out there. And we get blessed back.
0: The Mirror Cave.
2: The Mirror Cave, episode 17. Leftovers. A selection of outtakes. You know, the final audio of the Mirror Cave episodes is a tragically inadequate record of the experience of recording them. From trying to find a flat surface in Chris Francisco's crazy house, to Jeff Elkins trying to teach me telekinesis in the lobby of Crystal Awakenings, to sitting alone with Drip Mojal singing directly to me, uh, I can assure you that I'm getting a lot more out of this project than any of y'all are. Hours of audio has to be cut due to time constraints and narrative coherence. So this episode is a small selection of what you missed. All right. Gentle talking.
4: And if any and if any man's seed of copulation go out from him, then he shall wash all his flesh in water and be unclean until the even. And on the eighth day he shall take to him two turtle doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and give them unto the priest. So it could
2: have been worse. But uh, you were raised Jewish.
5: Yeah, I mean, well, raised Jewish. I don't even know what that means. Raised Jewish. You know, in my household, grandfather Gilbert came over. Rest in peace, Gilbert came over and like, he's... You know i got the electric knife out cut the turkey he said like three words of a prayer he couldn't remember we drank manischewitz. we were there's no culture there's no practice there mm-hmm. you
2: know so were my, you bar mitzvahed
5: yeah i was bar mitzvahed and that was weird too i didn't want to do that I didn't you, like but that.
2: you did the study you did the whole yeah thing. i did
5: the study i went over to this guy this rabbi's house in brooklyn like three days a week after school and i just memorized everything and he would sit on top like right next to me and he'd go like with his thumb like You know, he'd say the word, I'd say the word, he'd say the word, I'd say So I'd memorize it, but I didn't know it. Excuse me. And then in my uh, bar mitzvah, he did the same thing. It's (laughs) weird. There's all these people, but then we're on this little table, and he's right on top of me, because I don't know it. Except for him to go, you know, like, I memorize some of it. So Mm -hmm. he's going. And when i forget, he'd go. (laughs) And I'd go.
2: funny i was also bar Mitzvah in, in brooklyn oh you're jewish too i'm jewish too uh my mother's jewish wasn't raised at all
5: my mother's jewish too
2: and
3: see
5: my mom would say freddy i know you practice Buddhism, but you're a jew when your mother's a jew you're a jew well i was
2: bar mitzvah when i was uh i must have been about 35 years old uh you know the love Lubav- oh, wow. you know the Lubavitchers, the guys with the mitzvah wagon the rv where they come around with the speakers and they try and no, they, they try and pro- they're the only proselytizing jews where they try and get jews who are no longer <laughs> I thought practicing jews
5: prosely- in their own way. No, no they
2: never they- try and get make you become really jewish. these they these guys run around and they're always trying to get jews who have don't practice and get them to practice and i always used to see them in washington square park and they would always come up and be like excuse me are you jewish you know it's like i got a big yeah. nose it's like yeah thank you yeah goodbye but um this one time i was coming out of uh the diner in Brooklyn, and uh, they come up and they're like, "Excuse me, sir, are you Jewish?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." And they're like, "Were you bar mitzvahed?" And I'm like, "No, I was not." I'm like, "Would you like to be bar mitzvahed?"
5: <laughs> and I was like, "You did it?"
2: I don't really have much time, dude. You know? And they're like, "It'll take two minutes. It's an express you, mitzvah."
5: You did a drive by, right? Drive-by. So this
2: dude, the two little—they were charming. For for Lubavitchers, they were very charming guys, very cute. Lubevichs. And they. So the guy just reaches under his big hat and pulls out his own yarmulke, slaps it on my head. They grab that, uh, the leather box and the strap, yeah. which I, didn't, I know it's a tefillin, yeah, I guess. I've never heard is. of it yeah. or seen it. They oh, wrap yeah. that around me. they got a prayer shawl all over. I'm on the street corner. Like, yeah. We're standing there in front of this diner, and the guy has a little card, and he's, I, he's just like, repeat after me. Yeah. And I repeat it after him, and two minutes later, I'm a proud Jewish man.
5: That's crazy.
2: It was crazy, but the funny thing is, I had my camera with me, so my friend was taking pictures of me while yeah, I was getting bar mitzvahed. And I visited my grandmother in Florida yeah. that year, and I gave her a picture. What part of Florida, by the way? Uh, she lives in Fort Myers. Ugh. But uh, so I give her the picture. She goes in the other room. She comes back less than a minute later, and the thing is framed. <laughs> like, That's crazy. She
5: just rips up. And there we go. That's anyways crazy.
2: but I didn't get any money. Did you get any checks?
5: Oh yeah, I got you. Okay. Well, good. I did. A, well, I didn't do what you did. I did a whole like New York. You know, you go to the temple, then you go to the place where you dance, and you eat these buffet things, and, you know, like, people are coming with money. And I'm all dressed up in my talks, and I'm, like, so unhappy. I'm just, I don't want all the attention. I, You know, I was just like, it's a sham. I didn't even memorize my prayers, and, like, I didn't even, like, what, what like, what does being Jewish mean? I still don't even know.
2: But so you've accepted Jesus into your heart at age four. I'm not sure what that that entails. <laughs> like, what, what exactly did that entail? Like, what was that moment? Did you have to declare yeah. it? Like, yeah,
4: you, you have to, first you have to understand the concept. Um, and, and at least there's a ritual around it of like kind of getting on your knees, you know, bowing your head, you know, bowing as to a sovereign being and saying, you know, acknowledging like I'm a sinner. I know that as a human being, I'm sentenced to eternity of hellfire and the only redemption for me is the precious blood of Jesus Christ, your son, that gave his life for us so that we could have salvation. So please, I accept your sacrifice. I accept Jesus into my heart. You know, when I was a four-year-old, I'm sure I had much more simple vocabulary than that and maybe comprehension, but I knew that Jesus was the son of God. He sacrificed himself so that I could be saved from my human, uh, you know, um, sentence of of hellfire. That's heavy for a four-year-old. Yeah, I mean, it maybe explains a lot about my personality, though. You said
2: that uh, at the time you interpreted that experience as Jesus. Do you, have you reinterpreted it since? Or do you still think that that was a moment with Jesus.
0: I think that I know, let me rephrase that. I know that that moment um, and many moments leading up to that where I was praying, praying is, in essence, you're meditating. You're focusing. You're you're clearing your mind. And you're asking uh, the universe or whatever you want to call it for something greater. And so for all the times that I prayed and I focused, my interpretation is the sincerity and the emotion that I had in that moment, everything came together to where my energy aligned and I was open enough to have an experience. I think that part of my brain opened and um, I was able to receive it it could have been a being, but just, just love and acceptance of myself. Um, so for me, reinterpreting whether that was Jesus or not, I do not think that it was a Jesus experience. I think that it was a quote-unquote holy experience and that my brain opened and that the focus that I had for something greater, something divine, something godlike, greater than me to interact with me that that happened and so but it was the first step in myself so I don't believe it was something outside of myself I think that was the God within me mm-hmm. that was open to the universe and that I was ready for that experience and that um, that it happened but I reinterpreting I, yeah, I, I don't think that it was Jesus coming down laying his hands on me or anything like that but at that point in time I couldn't explain it any other way
1: I think there is a structure. I think because it's a when we speak about ayahuasca in particular and and I think in human consciousness, I think there is a structure, but I think it's whatever floor you want to get off on. I think there's like a spiral elevator that goes up and down and somehow if you go down far enough you you come in at the top floor. I think it's all connected. It's like and it's in some kind of loop like a torus shape or something, you know? So it depends on what floor you want to get off at. None of them being more important. None of them being higher or lower than the other, really. It's just, it's a spiral. And you just it's up to you to decide. I think it's all somewhat pointless because I don't think there being a point is important. I don't, you know, I think we search for, for meaning and for reason, but I don't think those things are really important when it comes down to pure human consciousness or the astral plane. So in the astral plane, I think it's it's reflective of, of our experience as humans. I feel like... Um, Essentially, like all the all the holy books of the world are basically say the same thing, and it's the same experience everyone has when they dig deep enough, except the holy books that we have are just happen to be the people who are eloquent enough to put it down in a way that God has shared. But anyone who has a mystical experience, I think because they're human, because the human archetype moves through a certain passage, that's what you end up with, You so, something very similar. So when you go to the astral plane, it's just... You know genetic memory you know we all enter a a similar place i don't know if it's an actual place that we go or if it just is represented by a place because that's how we experience we experience ourselves in a place having an experience so that's the only way we can relate we need we need a handle we need something to grab onto because if we completely lose ourselves i don't think we have an an experience anything that we can integrate or, or use in our lives And maybe we have those, but we don't remember them because there's nothing for us to remember. There's no us and them, there's no point of reference. So anytime you have a point of reference or experience, it has to come in the form of the human experience. So then we 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 create hierarchies so that we understand. I don't necessarily think that's how the universe is set up. I think that's just the only way that we're allowed to experience it because that's how we're structured. You know, we experience three dimensions. That's how we see it. So I think the astral is a projection you know of our of how we experience the world and when we go into our subconscious it's the only way we can sort it out is that we have to put it into you know categories that we can understand you know higher or lower you know left and right forward backward and on a timeline otherwise it's not going to make any sense to us it's just going to be a kaleidoscope which definitely happens and you know, i've had that one happen too you know if you go if you go that far you get that high all of your reference points melt away and you can either enjoy the experience or it can be hell terrifying.
6: And um, The shaman had told me about the psychic nun in Lima and I was flying out of Lima and he gave me the address and he actually called her and told her I would be coming and I had a a Spanish friend that was with me so she could interpret for me. And we went to the church where um, St. Thomas had lived, the black saint in Peru. So St. Thomas was the first black saint who was canonized. um, And he was performing miracles on the property and the, the, the other monks asked him not to because he was black, you know, and one of the fellow monks was like upstairs on like a third level of the the church and he had fallen. And Black Thomas, who was always known for, for sweeping up there, was sweeping, saw saw that it had happened and suspended him off the ground and kept him from falling, but he kept him suspended and he asked like to go ask the head monk if it was okay if he saved this person, if he performed this miracle and they're like, Of course So he did it and then after that that's when he was recognized of being a saint and uh, he has a lot of magical history and his mother was actually a shaman as well and it's where he lived and this woman, the psychic nun her name is Ada, she uh, is like a caretaker on the grounds where his room is so we got to see his room but she's instantly as soon as I met her, she read my palm, well she grabbed my hand and she said, whatever you do for a living it's electric you know And I was like, yeah, she'd probably never seen a tattoo machine before or anything like that. But she was like, yeah, I do tattoos. So she was right on that. And then she said, whatever, what you're doing for a living isn't what you were supposed to do. You're supposed to be a lawyer and kind of questioned. And like my translator said it in a questioning manner, like a lawyer. And I said, no, I'm not a lawyer. She said, a judge. I said, no, not a judge. And then she was like, police. And I was like, yeah, my grandfather, my father Um, my other grandfather and two of my uncles were all police. And, you know, when I was young, they thought I was going to be a policeman, you know, go along with the family tradition. And I said, yeah. And she said, which one of your family members was a Freemason? My grandfather was a Freemason. And she said, you come from a long line of Templars. You know, this is one minute into meeting her. You know, she looked at my hand and then she told me that. And then she had me stand over in one part of the, the church and she took my photograph and she said she looked at the camera and like blew it up on the screen and then, you know, like it was a digital camera, so she was like increasing the size of it. And she shook her head and she had me shift two feet and she said, Stand over there. Took it, blew it back up and there were all orbs around me. These like green balls and of light all around my head. And uh she also had us go into the tomb of Saint Rosa and lay on the tomb of Saint Rosa, and she asked me if I knew the Gayatri Mantra, and she had me chant the Gayatri Mantra on the tomb of Saint Rosa. I don't know what that meant, but it was a really powerful experience to be doing that in a Catholic church, you know. And uh, yeah, she told me all kinds of things, and she was telling my my interpreter, my friend, all kinds of things. And she it was funny because she would tell her things about me, and she'd start crying. And I'd, and I'd be like, what did she say? And she's like, she said, you know, you're, you're going to live a very beautiful life. I was like, why are you crying? And it, it was a long ex- explanation. That's all you're telling me. But I think she might have been telling, don't tell him this, but this is what's going to happen to him and stuff like that.
3: Uh, hell, I would I would say going to play a bar. Uh, and playing pedal steel, and, and there's a fight 30 feet, 10 feet away from me was a, is a spiritual endeavor. I would say playing in Salmon, Idaho, when I was 16, and a guy who claimed he wrote Your Cheating Heart, uh, you know, he's, he's wrote Your Cheating Heart, for God's sake. Uh, and then at, while we're playing, he grabs my harmonica out of a, a jar of water and he starts blowing on it. And then I have to play the harmonica, like, directly after that <laughs> on the microphone. Those are, I, you know, I, uh, I can't say that those aren't spiritual endeavors and something like LifeSpring or anything else I've done uh, is more spiritual, uh, actually. Uh, you know, as, as an overall thing, I mean, I kind of figure... See, I'm not one of those guys who who can look at something that on some levels fails and just, and then I can just wrap it all up and just say it was a failure and walk away, you know, and laugh at it. I know the good stuff that happens in there too, along with the laughable, you know? Okay,
7: um, I moved to Baltimore, the city of Baltimore. Baltimore City? I moved to Baltimore. And I was living in my sister's basement with no money no money, zero dollars and a lot of fleas I got a lot of fleas a torturous amount of fleas because some cat was living down there one of the roommates had bought a cat for her dad who was dying of cancer because she had heard it could help her dad but then he died and nobody wanted to take care of the cat and they left this cat in the basement filled with fleas and when I was stepped down there all the fleas would jump because they're heat-seeking. They would all jump onto my legs and then they would stay on me throughout the night. It was humbling, but obviously not humbling enough. It took a lot more to really get through some of that ego. <laughs> so it was terrible. I got called it every single day. By who? Natives of Hamden. Uh, at the time, Hamden was very overrun with sort of m&m looking kids and they look very innocent because m and looks innocent you know and like if you saw him on the street and he mouthed off to you you might be like whatever dude You're, you have bleach blonde hair and two hoop earrings and you would then you'd then realize he wasn't that innocent when his friends d12'd you or whatever but that's what it was like all day in baltimore <laughs> and Hamden back then got called F- it, every day nice pants the first thing that happened to me in Baltimore was I got surrounded by a gang of about like 10 kids that were ranging from age 8 to 18. <laughs> it started with the 8-year-old or 10-year-old who first called me f- for some reason and I was like, what? Yeah. And then they surrounded me came out of everywhere and I was like, okay, like I don't win this. And that was the next like two years there. You're called f- every day. Every day. You want me to tell you about the peacock feather? It's my favorite <laughs> story. <laughs> I was walking down the street, I was wearing, like, probably a pink Lacoste shirt or something. So, I remember this day, I was walking down the street holding this peacock feather someone handed me. So, it was like a full length peacock feather. And I was holding a pizza. And I had, like, a pink shirt on or something. And I remember thinking when they came around the corner, it was like this gang, Kings of H Town. And uh, they were walking up to me and I was like here it comes like the best opportunity handed to them ever and the one guy looked at me and he said nice pizza <laughs> I, <was> like, <laughs> <laughs> I looked at him and then his friends looked at him and then he turned back and said oh, and feather <laughs> and his friends like hit him or like pushed him way to go Donnie you messed up dude tone the to f- feather that's the f- part not the pizza <laughs> we like pizzas Donnie That's Baltimore.
8: But once you become lucid, you don't need to follow that logic anymore. You don't need to follow. You don't need to continue that illusion part.
2: I understand that. But then once you said becoming lucid is step step one. Once you become lucid, in dream yoga, what do you pursue in the dream instead of logic of the dream
0: yeah
8: if you don't follow the logic that's it you just sit there yeah that's called contemplation oh that's it that's the highest level of one that's one of the highest level of contemplation and then you discover what is potential of your mind
4: Mm -hmm.
8: potential of your mind you see everything potential of mind you are the best architect in the dream you are the best creator you are better than god Whatever you see, whatever you hear, you smell, you touch, everything is your own creation, your own projection. That's the power of your mind, right? Mm-hmm. If you contemplate in that space, that's called the inner space. That's called the inner color and inner light. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like that, that's the magic moment. Once you become lucid, you know, you stop following, you stop running. You stop getting lost and just just contemplate in that sense. You see a wall, you see a house, right? Normally you think it's a solid, it's concrete and this and that. But everything is becoming like 3D movie. Mm -hmm. But everything is you, Mm -hmm. transparent. And you can penetrate everything. There's no blockades, There's no stops for you. There's a wall. You you are inside of a house. Do you need to... When you go out, do you need to have a door or window? No, you just go through the wall. You have, you just the floor, you know, fly from the ceiling or just enter what, whatever. You are free. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm.
2: The freedom. But my question is what you do, what do you do with that freedom? Do you just sit and contemplate? Or? Yeah,
8: if you contemplate these things, uh, you get automatically. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Because everything is built of mind and everything's energy, and everything's light.
7: I would say anybody that I meet who I would call a seeker, like I don't know what other term to use, but to me that means they're a person here, they're born on this planet, and they are out looking for information on things beyond the physical realm, 100% you're going into theology, you're going into everywhere. And on top of that, you're going into every frequent, every vibe that you find. You could meet a, for me, I think I've been thinking a lot about it and it's because I never felt at home anywhere. So if I see somebody, let's say I'm 17, I see a group of people obsessed with the Grateful Dead. I wanna know what, they love, they're, they're there 100%. They found everything they need in life. and And they worship this band. And I'm like, I wanna see, what am I missing? I go into that world for a minute. And it's like, oh, this world that isn't for me, I'll come out of it. But I learn, like a reporter or something, from that experience. Later in life, that happens with drugs or just darkness, just crazy things, anything. I'm going into places, hit a spot where you say, that's it. I've reached the end of this road. I do not resonate with this. I've been. I can come here. I don't want to live here. This isn't me. I'm out. And then you leave, and you've got that experience. But you're still looking, like, where do I fit in? Where do I belong? I don't know. So most people like that that i met also are very in tune spiritually or or are going to be could be have it in them they're don't know it yet let's say most people when they're younger so um i think i was always doing that but i was always just oscillating going into darkness going into light periods you know periods of being very happy and good and then going periods where i'm just dark maybe and going doing all kinds of things a lot of those places i go down i don't i'm not proud of being there at the time it seemed cool and then you leave and you're like that's not cool like and meanwhile in a lot of these places people are dying in the middle of all this you know like what places are we talking about you hang you you have friends who are dead now from going too far down roads or something you have a friend i'm sure who's died from opiates you have friends in got into drugs went there experimenting just never came out they found that was their home their home was a dirty mattress on a floor with nothing else shooting up until they died and we have a lot of friends that went to these places looking for something and most of the time when you hear about them they're people that really had a lot of shine they're people that were brilliant they're people that were born with so many resources inside of them that they were in touch with something about this world is can be crushing and you find out there's escape buttons everywhere, and you get start pushing one, and then don't want to come back. It's just like get me off of this planet.
1: And from the forest, the there were fruits on the trees that were falling into the water, into the ocean. And when the fruit would hit the water, it would it would splash like oil paint, like it would just dissipate. It was, Reds and oranges and yellows would land in this silver, blue and purple water and splash we're like, oh my God, this is it. This is paradise. So we all leap into the air. And as we do, our clothes come off of us and we land in the water. And I realize quickly that I can breathe underwater. And so instead of swimming, I'm like crawling through the water, pulling myself out into the ocean. And up ahead of us, we can see these four gray, like shimmering um, shadows coming toward us through the water. And as they get closer, we realize it's four dolphins, right? And there's one for each of us, like they're pairing. And there's like light coming through the, coming through the waves and like shimmering on these dolphins. It's it's beautiful. It's perfect. So each of us meets the dolphin that we're paired with, except we we reverse position, and so that their tails are to our heads and our heads are to their tails, right? So we're in this reverse position, and in between our navels, basically, or like our stomachs, is like a beam of light, right? So we're all of a sudden, we're attached. To these, Each of us is attached to a dolphin, and we all start spinning. Right, we're spinning in these pods, like we're we're in an embryo together. And I just felt like this this perfect peace. And then I see that the sun, in like a time lapse photography scene, the sun goes down, shoots over the jungle, and then these dolphins part with us, and the dolphins shoot off into the into the ocean. And then we head up back to the beach, crawl our way back through the water, up up the beach, and onto the sand. And uh, as we walk up onto the sand, all three of my friends melt into the sand and they disappear. And I keep walking forward toward the jungle.
2: The guests, in order of appearance, were Craig Thompson, Fred Green. Susie Rosinski, The Unnamed Iowascaro, Robert Ryan, Daryl Scott, Chase Lisbon, and Dr. Nita Chinogtong. Mirror Cave is produced by Scott Harrison, themed by Tectonic Crystal. Music by Aker. Check out Aker's music on his Bandcamp page. It's really good. The little snippets I use
7: don't do it justice. You should look it up. You can follow us on iTunes and